This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Matzo. I'm Charlie Navarrete. Please relax, get yourself something good to eat and drink. Um, I always like things with lots of sugar, but you know, mm-hmm. that's me. Well, well, that's and sweet. thank you for spending. I know I am. I have to keep my sweetness up. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, we have our recipe of the week from Charlie. In the second half, I'm going to be continuing our um, ongoing series about the uh, last hours, days of living. And so we're going to talk about something called terminal lucidity at the end of life, or as I always called it when I explained it to my patients, the last hurrah. And in our third half, uh, we're going to have an interview with Dr. Lynn Wagner, the author of the book, Four Seasons of Grieving. So Charlie, hey, Charlie, have you seen the squid game yet? Holy <laughs> No, and I'm no, and I'm so not interested in seeing it. I, I know the premise and everything. And actually, there was um, on uh, Saturday Night Live uh, uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago, there was um, uh, a spoof on it. And, and even the spoof, mm-hmm. even the spoof, I mean, it was funny. But even that was frightening. Um, no, I, I have not had the displeasure of seeing it. Have, have you seen it? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, Dave and I are old, but you know, I've got kids in my in their early twenties. Well, well, you know, so I well, you, like know try to you know what? Stay but, current. But, but let me interrupt what? you. Maybe not everyone knows about the Squid Game. Oh, well. So it's what on Netflix? What's it on HBO? Where is it? Um, <laughs> it's it is. Uh, it's it's on TV. Uh, I think I think it's it. Is, I think television. it is. I think it is Netflix. Yeah. So it's a South Korean um, series, right. and the actors are therefore all South Korean, and the voices are hysterically dubbed in. Um, it reminded me of like Woody Allen's What's Up Tiger Lily kind of thing. Oh, it's oh like my, they, oh they take these voices <laughs> that do not go oh, with the people and do not show. go with the characters. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so... If you just, from that point of view, watched it, it's, if I mean, if you didn't pay attention to everything that's going on and just looked at that, it's, it, that's pretty wild. But, you know, you try to let yourself get past that. Um, but the, the premise is, is that there's this South Korean guy who has a gambling problem in up to his ears in debt, and he gets offered the chance to have that debt um, taken care of yeah, and raised, the potential yeah, to yeah. earn a lot of money. And so I said to Dave, because we, I, you know, we have these younger kids is, is, is let's just watch one. Cause I knew what it was about. And I said, it's not my, you know, that's not my thing. I said, let's just watch one episode so that if anybody says, have you seen the squid game? We can say, Oh yeah, we, we did, but you know, we didn't really like it. So we sit down and we watch one episode and I look at him, I said, well, you know, my theory always is with these series, you got to watch two. You just got to give them two. So we watched the second one. And then uh-huh. he was like, well, yeah, yeah, okay. The next one? Right. And then it was all over. So and five like hours later. Days. Yes. <laughs> well, it was like three days of the Squid Game, you know? And um, it is disturbing, but amazing and so very interesting with plot twists and bad dubbing and (laughs) it's just I don't know I don't know why and I can't even tell you why we got sucked into it it just was like ooh, this is interesting you know what's gonna happen it's um yeah I I don't know we I was going to say we live in interesting times I'm not sure that's the right word but with with so much in the air, just the you know, just the, the the tension from both you know the 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 two C's, COVID and climate change. I guess that three C's. The uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, a feeling of you know doom and gloom in the air, and and this just something like this just heightens it. Um, you could you could see you know <sighs> you know the planet or people you know. 
my barber, you know. Um, but the thing you know, is, is that mm-hmm. is that alliances get alliances get formed. People, in order to survive, well, well take there, care there, of each well, other. Okay, well, th- well, there we are. Alliances form. I'm sorry. <laughs> Take a look at America. <laughs> Alliances, you know, have formed. Ergo, um, yeah, I, I can understand why this is a big hit. And I'm sure it'll be coming, you know, I'm sure there'll be an American version of it too. Oh, I hope not. I hope not. It's, it's so, it, it's, it's it's really actually I think you know well done you know mm-hmm. there's there's so many layers and things that you could focus on and talk about and or you or there's the the bigger picture of the playing of the game because what they do is they go to this place and they play six games and um, I don't know all I can say is. I'm almost 65. David's what's going to be 67 soon. We thought this isn't for like our generation, but we got hooked. So, hmm. Charles, what do you have for our first half this week? I forgot. Oh, um, yes. So, <laughs> after the squid game, you're going to need a few of these. <laughs> well, you know, maybe I should start now. Well, shiver me timbers. The Navy just celebrated its 256th birthday. And to celebrate, our recipe of the week is a Navy grog cocktail. Although the origin of this drink lies with the British Royal Navy, how much do we care when this much rum is involved? Not much is the answer. We love all Navy men and women. Oh, especially me, Olive. Yes, Popeye, especially your Olive. It was a healthy drink because it saved the water they stored on the ship. And it offered the nutrition to fight diseases like scurvy. And it offered the nutrition to fight diseases like scurvy. Didn't I just say that? I think I'm repeating myself. Okay. So this grog dates back to the 1700s and was typically a mix of rum, water, honey or molasses, lemon or lime, and sometimes cinnamon. Oh, look, I said that word correctly. (laughs) You did that on purpose, didn't you? I was so excited. <laughs> yes, I was so excited. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> for, for, the, for, the, for you first-time listeners. For, the, for those who've missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie has issues with cinnamon. <laughs> cinnamon. Ha! But, issues are but over. Go on. for all those therapy sessions. Huh? Okay, so let me like. <laughs> Let me digress and tell you about scurvy. Scurvy is a disease resulting from a lack of vitamin C, ascorbic acid. Am I pronouncing that correctly, Marion? So symptoms start after about three months of no vitamin C. And allow me to digress further. And if I don't have your permission, I'm doing it anyways. But I digress. No. (laughs) Another British invention Quinine to fight malaria in the tropics. You know, when the friendly savers, savers, when the friendly sailors made themselves at home on other people's homes and began to die from malaria, quinine did the trick but tasted so awful that gin was used for medicinal purposes to kill the flavor. Today we call this a gin and tonic. Another example of better living through chemistry. That's right. Meanwhile, back at the scurvy Plastics and plastics. Oh, my God. It's so horrible. It's all the plastic. Did you hear this thing this past week about all the plastic in the ocean on the floors? And now that the fishies can't, like a lot of them can't even eat now? Okay. I'm digressing too much. David, we dive. We see it. It's, you know. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So anyway, vitamin C. In the ocean, in the middle of Oklahoma, middle of the Oklahoma ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, back at the scurvy ranch, vitamin C in the Navy Grog cocktail comes from the lemons or limes that were added. Early symptoms of deficiency include weakness, feeling tired and sore arms and legs. Without treatment, 
decreased red blood cells, gum disease, changes to care, and bleeding from the skin may occur. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. As scurvy worsens, there can be poor wound healing, personality changes, and finally, death from infection or bleeding. And now, back to my story. Rum. Rum was not used by the British Navy until 1655, when Vice Admiral William Penn conquered Jamaica during the Anglo-Spanish War. So this was long before James Bond conquered them. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Very money. good, Charles. I tried money, Penny. At that time, the island had limited options for trade, but it did have a lot of rum. Looking to restock the ships, Penn began giving the sailors rum in place of beer and water. He's like my kind of guy, huh? I was going to say, you know, leadership of the highest order. 75 years <laughs> later, a rum provision was put into the Regulations and Instructions Relating to His Majesty's Service at Sea. The regulation said that one undiluted half pint of rum was equal to a gallon of beer. So rum became a part of the provisional stock on every ship in the British Navy. Oh, Britannia. Vice Admiral Edward Vernon, nicknamed Old Grog after a grain cloak he wore, always fought for better conditions for sailors in the Navy. But because of his sailors getting rum twice a day, the officers were constantly dealing with drunkenness and problems with their crews. Who would have thunk? Vernon Big surprise, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Vernon issued an order in 1740 which stated that all rum must be mixed with water. And the crew could, from the saving of their salt provisions and bread, purchase sugar and limes to make it more palatable to them. The rum had to be diluted in the presence of a lieutenant of the watch on the deck. This fix to their ration was nicknamed Grog, after the admiral. Served twice a day with the call of up spirits. The purser would deliver the ration until the practice was ended in 1970. Do you believe it didn't end until 1970? That's just Uh, wild. Yeah, that is kind of amazing. (laughs) It lasted that long. (laughs) And, And maybe they should consider bringing it back. So... Navy Grog is a boozy powerhouse with three ounces of rum, often a higher proof, as it should be, and it's occasionally limited to two per guest in some establishments. Not any civilized joint that I know of, but uh, more than the volume, (laughs) though. The drink demonstrates how well different styles of rum blend with their various flavors to find a delicate and intoxicating balance. Jamaican rum brings earthy funk which later changed its name to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Gold Demara sugar gives the drink a rich backbone, and white rum lends its brightness and fruit notes. And boy, will you sing after one of these babies. So thank you, and happy birthday to the Navy, and up spirits. Remember to drink responsibly. And speaking (laughs) responsibility. Please go to our webpage for a link to recipes and additional resources for this program. We hope you will follow us, figuratively, not literally, please, on uh, Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> and remember to rate and review this podcast. As a nonprofit, we are dependent on you, kind strangers, and always appreciate your donations. Please go to our webpage to donate in support of our work, www.everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies. Marianne. Thank you for that report, Charles. That was fascinating. <coughs> Sorry, Sandy. Yeah, I had to cough. <coughs> Thanks, Charlie. So today we're going to continue with our series about the last hours, days of living. And we're going to talk about something called terminal lucidity. Now, back when I was working in hospice, which is probably, what, 20 years ago now, um, 
this terminal lucidity, which I'm going to tell you all about, you know, I would see happen or families would tell me about it. And I would always call it the last hurrah. And I would tell families after that, and when I would talk about the end of life, is that here's something that can happen. It's not something was written about in the literature. It was more considered an anecdotal thing, like something that hospice nurses knew. But we really didn't have any understanding of it. But in 2009, a German biologist by the name of Michael Nam um, wrote a paper about terminal lucidity. And it refers to this unexpected return of mental clarity and memory, or suddenly regaining consciousness that occurs in the time shortly before death in patients suffering from severe psychiatric or neurological disorders. So in his words, in um, Nam's words, he defines it as the emergence or re-emergence of normal or unusually enhanced mental abilities in dull unconsciousness or mentally ill patients shortly before death, including considerable elevation of mood and spiritual affection or the ability to speak in a previously unusual spiritualized and elated manner. So essentially what they're talking about is people who um, maybe had schizof schizophrenia their whole life and it was at the end of their life and there it's been maybe years and they haven't spoken in some case studies it, their whole life they've never spoken. People who've had severe strokes who can no longer speak, people with severe Alzheimer's disease, suddenly kind of wake up and are there. They're present. Um, and does, does anyone know why? How this happened? Well, are you, or are you getting to that? Well, oh, I'm getting to that. Okay. But back when I was wor working in hospice, you know, this would happen and you'd think to yourself, there's just like no way in hell that this could be happening but yet it did and there was no explanation and because it doesn't happen to everybody and because you don't know if it's going to happen or when it's going to happen it's just has, hasn't been studied it's just sort of in the archives of well we hear this happens but we really don't know much about it now, terminal lucidity should not be confused with terminal agitation. We're going to talk about terminal agitation next week. Because um, terminal, agi terminal agitation is, is characterized by delirium, anxiety, agitation, cognitive decline. Not the same at all. Terminal lucidity applies to someone who's close to death and has been unresponsive, yet will suddenly show a marked improvement in their energy and their mental functioning. They engage in meaningful conversation with others. They can ask for food or drink. They appear to be their old selves. Families think that there's been some sort of miraculous healing has taken place and that their loved one's now going to be okay, only to have them die a few minutes or a few hours later. And that's why I would always call it the last hurrah. It's like suddenly, you know, they would kind of just, I don't know, come out of wherever they were and be their old selves again. And I uh, had a, I used to do a Alzheimer's support group and um, had this husband, this man who would come in and his wife um, had Alzheimer's disease and she had been a lawyer in her, in her work and she, he was taking care of her and she just, you know, there were just a lot of issues, but eventually she got to end stage Alzheimer's and she was no longer able to talk and she was no longer able to interact with anybody. Well, after she died, he came back to group and he said, you're not going to believe what happened. He said that she woke up and knew everybody around him, her, him and, and their kids. He, they... She talked to them. She asked for some green jello and she ate it. And um, she was joking with them. And then she kind of went back to sleep and within an hour died. 
And I remember when I heard that story, Charlie, that was like, that there is no logic to that. She was in end-stage Alzheimer's. Things were not connecting in her brain anymore. But here she was talking normally, eating, asking for specific things to eat. It is is truly mind-blowing, and there's no explanation. And this little bit, there's the little scientific research into this phenomena of, of terminal um, lucidity really only involves anecdotal reports of people who experience these end-of-life rallies. But if you look back in the med- medical literature, they um, these researchers, Nam and his researchers, went back 250 years, and they were able to find, you know, how you can, um, I don't know if people know you, like in medical journals, there's places where you can write, here's a weird thing that happened, you know, yeah, sort of like yeah. this one time thing. And they were able to find these throughout the last 250 years where doctors would write, here's what happened, and there's no explanation to it. Um, but if you talk with um, nurses who work in hospice or people who work with the dying, they'll tell you, oh, yeah. That happens. I've seen it, and they'll tell you stories. So when do the, when does terminal lucidity occur? Um, there was one study. There were forty nine case studies of terminal lucidity, and eighty four percent of the the event occurred within a week of death, and forty three percent on the final day of life. So we're talking about the last days of living, the last week to the last hours. Um, terminal lucidity can be found in individuals with dementia, brain tumors, strokes, mental illnesses such as schizophrenia. And these are the people who we think would be the least likely to have this experience because they're mentally no longer there. So um, here's one case example from Nam's work. It's a woman age 91 suffered from two strokes. The first stroke paralyzed her left side and deprived her of clear speech. After a few months, a second stroke rendered her entirely paralyzed and speechless, and her daughter was caring for her. Hmm. An exclamation from her mother brought her to instant attention. The old woman's face was smiling brightly, although her facial expression had been frozen since her second stroke. She turned her head and sat up in bed with no apparent effort. Then she raised her arms and exclaimed in a clear, joyous tone the name of her husband. Her arms dropped again, and she sank back and died. So there are two types of of terminal lucidity. The first occurs in some patients with chronic mental illnesses when their psychiatric symptoms become less pronounced or disappear altogether starting about a month before their deaths. So this is like, imagine this, Charlie, as somebody who was, you know, um, chronic mental illness suddenly it's like the cloud clouds are parting suddenly you know there's some you know like the lights starting to turn on yeah, no that's perfect the yeah the clouds periods, are parting yeah 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 there these lucid periods emerge gradually um they have cases of schizophrenia and affective disorders typically um will belong in this first category Um, And the process of becoming lucid may take several days or weeks after long years of severe and uninterrupted mental disturbance. Nam, the author who we've talked about, says that, um, I quote, the severity of mental derangement improves slowly in conjunction with the decline of the body vitality. Um, Nam reports about a Russian study from the 1970s of people with schizophrenia who had without prior lucid intervals living in seemingly stable psychiatric mental states for many years. One man who'd been completely catatonic for nearly two decades allegedly became almost normal before he finally died. Wow. Jeez. So okay. that's the first type. Yeah. I know, huh? The second type um, is defined as full mental clarity can appear quite abruptly and unexpectedly just hours or days before death. Full mental clarity emerges suddenly um, 
just before they die. Those people with Alzheimer's disease and brain tumors usually belong in the second category. The return of mental clarity often occurs in the last seconds, minutes, or hours before the patient's death. The most astonishing cases of terminal lucidity concern patients who suffered from severe neurologic diseases such as meningitis, tumors, Alzheimer's disease, or strokes. Um, In short, cases in which there's no reason to think that the brain's neurological circuits um, were able to function because they're so severely impaired or destroyed. So... How common is terminal lucidity before death? Um, The truth is that we really don't know because it hasn't been well studied for the reasons I said. You don't know who's going to have it, when it's going to come, and when it comes, it's just there. And, you know, you don't have time to have a pro, you know, you'd be sitting around waiting for it to happen. So there aren't real, there aren't studies. Um, there was one small study that estimated about 10% of dementia patients will experience a sudden improvement before death. Among those who do, the majority die within a week or so, and about half of them within the same day. So why does this happen? I mean, what's the point of a minute or two or five minutes or 10 minutes of clarity, um, you know, that moment of clarity before death. So even if um, terminal lucidity is a genuine phenomena, which I've seen and I know, so I, I, don't, I don't doubt that it is, um, who's to say that there isn't a logical scientific explanation, um, one that involves some sort of unknown brain physiology? Uh, Nam, the author who's done the most studying about it, um, says that he doesn't discount the possibility entirely, but for cases involving obvious brain damage, it really is a genuine medical mystery because the organs damaged, why why would it suddenly work like that? Yeah, come back, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Some have speculated that um, as our organs fail, and you know, last week we talked about multi-system organ failure. So if you're tuning in this week and you're saying, what's that all about, go back to last week and you'll see a thing on uh, multi-system organ failure. So as organs fail, fail it, um, they might release a steroid-like substance that helps to energize the brain. Some speculate that it could be a spiritual experience or a divine gift. Certainly is a gift for family members who are there at the deathbed to have one last opportunity to be with their loved one as they were and to be able to say goodbye and to be able to laugh with them or eat green jello. Uh, both family members and caregivers who have been witness to the state feel that they themselves have been changed by that experience. And certainly their grieving is going to be different because they've had that gift. Um, experiences such as terminal lucidity, deathbed visions, near-death experiences, which we're going to talk about near-death experiences next week too, have raised questions about whether the mind is a product of the brain. Some philosophers and theologians have theorized that consciousness is outside of the brain. This led to the idea that the human soul is separate from the brain and can survive bodily death which leaves open the possibility of something more spiritually significant with the transcendental subject, meaning the soul, loosens itself from the physical root of the brain as death approaches and being able to enter into usually hidden realms. There may one day be a scientific explanation for this phenomenon, but until then, if you lift your if you're with your loved ones at the end of life and you're lucky enough to be around them when they're having such an experience, consider it a final gift and savor those moments. The dying who have these experiences appear to have a more calm and peaceful death, while family members who are with them say that they always cherish that special last moment with their loved one. That's nice. Do you have any questions about that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, just what I said before, you know, why why does this happen? But, you know, as you've explained, you know, we just don't know. Nobody knows. And maybe, you know, as a brain continues to be explored, maybe one day there'll be a, there'll be an explanation, be an answer for why this happens. But, um, I, yeah, this is just, uh, you know, it's it's great. And I'm, and I'm sure with some people, too, I've, I've had a couple of clients, it, it just freaked them out. And I just this was years ago now. Uh, I remember one one person was was angry because you know she felt that the I think it was one of her parents I, I think her mom maybe I mean as you described became lucid she was her old self and then died you know later that that day and I remember this uh, this woman was was still angry she felt the you know the doctor or nurse had given her mother something and that which allowed her mother to be lucid and then she died and mm. she she couldn't quite let let go of that notion that you know somehow the the hospital screwed up if they could make her lucid why weren't they able to to, to keep that why did she die afterwards mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well and that yeah. and that makes sense because the terminal lucidity doesn't make sense, right? Right. So it's really oh, easy yeah. yep. to add a conspiracy yeah. theory to that event because how else are you going to explain it? Yeah. And I think that that's what's important about what you and I do with these these shows is that we say, here's the science. Here's what's going on so that you don't have to be angry or make up some sort of alternative explanation you know, if we have the science, I'll tell you. And if we yeah. don't have the science, I'll tell you why we don't. But, um, right. you well, know, you, you, mentioned, uh, you don't have to wonder. Yeah, you mentioned um, that sometimes in a courtroom you, you would explain, you, you were called in as a, as, you know, to give expert, expert. I do expert witness. Witness. Yeah. For was it? Because, uh, you know, um, um, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember, but the behavior in the patient had changed because it was, I believe, something at, at the end of the patient's life. They just became very agitated, uh, but that was just part of the dying process. What what was it? You know, I've told you so many stories, Charles, that I don't know specifically which <laughs> one you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, no, because I've, I've I've been told this by you know, uh, you know by you know uh, by lay people where. Um, yeah, you know, suddenly, oh, it was about breathing. That, um, oh, shoot. It was, at the end of their life, their, their breathing became more labored just because their body was, was shutting down. Um, mm-hmm. Breathing was shutting down. Yeah, and, we did a show. The very first one about, the very first one in the series was about breathing, wasn't it? That's what it was. Yes. And yeah. that, and that, um, many times, the uh, you know, the patient's family would in, misinterpret that as, you know, my, my, you know, my, my father's in horrible shape. He can't breathe. What have you done to him? Why don't you do something? And as you explained, well, there's nothing to do. This is part of the process of dying. You know, with these particular well, the, the things that we can do is to is to use the medication so that right. they're comfortable to give them their morphine, give them their Ativan, because this is this is part of the process, right. and that by giving those medicines, we're not killing anybody. We're making them comfortable as yeah. yes. they go through the dying process. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Very good. Here in our third half, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lynn Wagner, the author of The Four Seasons of Grieving. She is a registered nurse who retired from teaching nursing at Fitchburg State University in Massachusetts. Dr. Wagner is currently a nurse consultant as a caring science scholar regarding the development of caring practice from a personal and professional perspective. Her book, Four Seasons of Grieving, was written in the year after the death of her mother. 
Everyone Dies is pleased to offer readings from this book over the next year to help our listeners think about their own grief. Before we hear from Dr. Wagner, I am going to read a poem she wrote that summarizes her book, Four Seasons of Grief. A Journey of Grief Healing My winter tears become reflective icicles. My spring prayers burst out of blooming buds. My summer laughter celebrates heated growth. My fall singing honors the richness of the earth. For in being lost, I found myself deep inside surrendering. In surrendering, I awaken my love of self-forgiving. In forgiving, I am open to receive gratitude. In gratitude, I am connected to the universe, wholeness. In wholeness, I am posed for compassionate service giving. Thus, the circle of the seasons connects me to my healing. In my pause, in my stillness, in my being present. We hope our interview with Dr. Wagner is healing to you. Hello, and welcome to my interview with Dr. Lynn Wagner. Lynn, how are you? I am just great today, thanks. Thank you for joining us. And we have such an honor to have Lynn with us. She's written a book called Four Seasons of Grieving. And we'll give you the link of uh, where you can get that. And it's actually one of those books that makes like a great gift for somebody who has um, experienced a death in, in their life. That's how I use this book um, personally. It's a great thing to send to somebody. Um, but Lynn had wrote this book after the death of her 92-year-old mother, who um, had lived with dementia for a while. And she talks about, in the very beginning of the book, um, her mother dying. And, and she, she says that being with her rather than doing for her was um, part of that death process. And I thought that that was really a wonderful way of, of thinking about and thinking about the end of life, is that really it's a lot of being with somebody. And um, Dr. Wagner's a nurse, and she talked about, you know, there's one thing you do as a nurse, but as a daughter, she says, my heart knew only that I had lost a part of myself. And as she went through that process of the funeral and all of that, there was a tapping on her window from a maple tree. Um, Dr. Wagner lives in Massachusetts, and there was this maple tree that was tapping on her window. And she said she found herself talking to that tree. And over the next four seasons, as she dealt with her grief. So, Lynn, I wanted to talk with you some more about that in terms of really how you shared your grief with that tree um, and, and how that really helped you through your grieving and what it taught you. Big question. <laughs> It's a really, a really good question, Marianne. And, you know, when I have told people I spent a year talking to a tree, they sort of uh, look at me uh, very um, trying to understand um, in a very special way. But um, it was so natural. Uh, this tree that stands very close to the house um, was a sapling when we moved in uh, and grew. As our children grew and our lives grew, um, the tree grew and it became this uh, gorgeous sugar maple um, tree in New England um, with the wonderful changing colors and you know, the gifts it gives. So uh, this had been uh, very much a part of our lives and our children's lives. And in fact, my mother used to love to hug the tree. So the night I came home, um, the house was empty. My husband was away. 
uh, and I had um, sat vigil with my mom for about uh, 24 hours. And I came home around 1 a.m. to the empty house and, of course, a tremendous emptiness of my soul. Uh, and as I wandered around the house, uh, sort of empty and um, sad, I uh, heard this, as you said, um, sound on my window. And the window is a skylight window uh, that's in the bathroom off our bedroom. And I looked, and what I saw was the moon. This was a February, a cold February night, but clear. And the moon, almost full, was shining in through the skylight window, through the branches of this tree. And it was so mesmerizing and, 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 and also comforting in some unearthly way. Um, I was just drawn to it. And all of a sudden, I felt as though I could sort of tell my story of what had just happened to this tree. Mm-hmm. I also am a photographer, and my camera is always nearby. And I was just uh, driven to take a picture because I didn't want to ever forget that image of Mm -hmm. the moonlight coming through the window through the bare branches of this tree. And the tree was actually um, lit up but also silhouetted in a way. Uh, And I was finally able to fall asleep uh, with tears. And I woke up the next morning and the tree was still there. And I realized that I had you know, started a conversation. Uh, So as time went on, um, I decided that I would take pictures of this tree, which I did almost daily for a year, Mm. and follow its path. But at the same time, I was attending to my grief journey. And that winter, that tree gave so many gifts. I would have a bad night and I'd wake up and there had been a storm and I'd wake up to this tree and it was just dripping with icicles hanging from its branches. And I took a picture and could really zoom in with my lens and see this tree's almost with its tears the icicles started to represent the tree's tears as it battled the outside weather Mm. and was able to just metaphorically relate to my tears of grief that clung. And the winter, you know, proceeded with all sorts of weather events, be it the tree holding clusters of snow in its branches um, and feeling very cold as I looked at it. But there was also a beauty, and I realized that there was a beauty all around me that if I let go at times, I could also engage in the beauty of the life around me and let it sort of reside along with my grief. At the same time, I was studying... Jean Watson's theory of human caring, or what she calls caring science. And she talks in her books about the four tasks of human healing, being surrender, forgiveness, gratitude, and compassionate service. And that these four ways of being, if you will, um, are part of human healing. And I, that winter, I realized really for the first time the depth of what surrender meant. And I was having to surrender my mother to another world. And I needed to surrender to the fact that she was no longer going to be in my life, but she could still be part of my life uh, in memories and all the things she taught me. And 
at the same time in viewing this tree, I realized this aha moment that, gee, the tree also surrenders. This, this beautiful tree surrenders to winter by losing its leaves and bearing its branches so it can survive the snow and the ice and get ready for its next blooming. And so I had a much bit deeper appreciation of surrender. Then the warmer month came. April actually started well before April, but March, April. Again, this tree was teaching me the whole idea of forgiveness I'm now later in my grieving journey, and I had also acknowledged that there was, in order for me to heal, some element of forgiveness that I needed to attend to. And I saw this tree in front of me each morning, forgiving winter, just bursting with new life, first tiny buds, and then bigger buds, and then whole buds open. I never realized that maple trees had these long hanging tentacles uh, as they give off their seeds. And I saw that with my long lens. And so, again, a new awareness of forgiveness in my healing. And by the way, I was journaling while all during all of this time each season each day i was journaling my thoughts about the tree my thoughts about my own grieving and where i was and applying my growing knowledge about uh, healing human healing through the theory of human caring And so I was able to capture my thoughts. And then time went on, and spring turned to summer, and this tree blossomed with its full leaf look, beautiful, big, leafed maple tree. And I had a sense of gratitude that the tree was teaching me. The gratitude that we've had the whole time we lived in this house of this tree's presence of the shade it afforded to us during the summer. Uh, And I was at a stage where I could now truly start recognizing how much I really am grateful for in life. And I would journal about gratitude and where I was along my grief journey healing. Uh, And again, through my lens, through the photography, through my conversations with this tree, uh, I could relate it to my own process and realize that gratitude was lifting much of the deep grief that I was feeling um, early on. And I also knew that the grief never went away, but it felt lighter and it felt as though I was healing through the process of surrender, forgiveness, and now a deep sense of gratitude for what I had and what I had before and what I still have uh, in my life. Mm -hmm. And summer eventually fell into fall, and this tree transformed itself yet again into the beautiful yellowish red leaves that decorated the world and I called this season of the tree the compassionate service that Watson's theory talks about as part of healing because as we become stronger and we attend to our own well-being we're able to give this compassionate service and people who want to give compassionate service gain a sense of joy from it And this tree was certainly giving joy, um, hopefully to itself, but certainly to the world around it. And Mm -hmm. so when I photographed its glory of the fall season, uh, it was a joyous uh, sense that the tree was emanating. But part of um, this compassionate service, which I had never even thought about. I had realized along the way that I had taken so much granted, 
so much for granted in this tree and casually was aware that it was there. But this season, I realized as the leaves began to drop, I realized it was nourishing the earth. It was no longer just a burden that needed to be raked up every fall, but it was the tree's way of nourishing the earth and dropping these leaves to the earth and letting them lie there and eventually disintegrate so it it became nourishment. But it also was taking care of itself and getting ready for that winter again so it could withstand the winter snows and winds. And so I came round circle um, with this tree in both my own healing process and really appreciating the gifts of nature uh, in what it teaches us as we deal with our own lives and our own journeys. And I, I have to add, you know, people have asked me, well, my mom or my special person, you know, died in the summer. And the way I like to look at it is that it doesn't matter what season you're grieving, you're deep grieving, and uh, the way grieving progresses for you, but because everyone has their winter grief, and that winter grief is the raw grief that occurs after a loss. But in most people's healings, uh, there's a softening of that grief. never goes away. It always stays, but it can learn to live beside the gratitude and the forgiveness. Uh, And so, you know, yes, I had a lesson because of the seasons, but I realize the seasons can also be transposed into other people's uh, grief journeys. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, that you must find, because I find this with my own grief, is that um, I can I can feel that that raw grief twenty years after the death or after the loss. You know that that can come at any time, and the the joy and the re, the gratitude can come at any time. Have you found that? Yes. Very much so. And I think it was a hard lesson. I've had other losses in my life. Um, I did lose my dad uh, when I was uh, in nursing school, actually, um, mm. as a 20-year-old. Uh, and, and I wasn't able to process his, his death in a way that was as healing. But regardless of that healing process it's it's a loss and it resides in you and i will still have moments where something will trigger that raw grief Mm -hmm. um it could be a picture it could be looking at that tree in the fall um it could be it's just a memory uh a a special event wishing that my mom could be there. Uh, And what I've learned to do is honor those feelings, Mm -hmm. but also realize that they don't have to continue to reside in its fullness because I've gone through a healing process. Um, I honor that they appear and I honor the moment often with tears, um, often with a sense of sadness that may last that whole day. Uh, but I'm able to pass through that deepness and let the joy in earlier than I did when it was first happening. Right. And I think that what you're sharing is so vital for us to 
think about and consider, and I hope our listeners will hit the rewind button and and listen closely to to what you're saying because we're really not taught how to deal with our grief. We're not taught how to to think about it or or move through it. I mean, and by move through it, I don't mean that you get over it. You know, I know I can remember as a young girl, people, you know, people would say, well, just get over it, you know, and we know that that's not the case, that that's not going to happen, but we still have a life to live, and we still have love to happen, and we still have people to care for and people to care for us, and so because we're still alive, we need to find a way that we can move through and experience that loss and grief and survive through the other side. Right. And I agree. And that's some um, some of the uh, situations that come up in, in my book because I was told, you know, and again, I was journaling real life happening at the end of every day and in the book just reflects some of the excerpts from that but yeah people would say uh well it's been six months so why are you still you know grieving like that mm-hmm. um and you know i realized from a nurse uh, you know theoretically as a nurse that you need to help people get over it <laughs> but you know, when it comes down to reality, you don't. And I had to, I had to relearn that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, even flashbacks from what I've tried to help patients understand uh, would come back, and I'd say, well, you know, I probably didn't handle that real well because I realize now that every person journeys through grief in their own way and in their own time Mm -hmm. but with help of healing processes and support um, most people are able to uh, really find healing along that way how long it takes is is individual Uh, and you mentioned love uh, just a minute Mm -hmm. ago I think Mm -hmm. love for me was the staying power uh, when I could remind myself of how much love was in my life and how many people had reached out. There were times when I wasn't ready for people to try to support me. Um, mm-hmm. I just pushed it aside. But I w- as I was able more and more to accept that support, and it was through pure love that it was being given, Um, it helped me love myself again or to see what an important role love is and uh, and what role it plays in one's healing. It also reminded me that my mother's love never dies. It is always going to be a part of me. And sometimes those memories make me sad in a in a you know in a particular day and I'll never know what triggers it but again honoring gosh this is coming from a place of love and yes I miss her and yes it's really sad that she can't enjoy you know the trees today or her grandchildren or whatever but I can then say um, but it's okay you know it's it's okay uh, to feel this way, and it's okay to move on. And I think that that's a, a great way to, you know, end our conversation here, Lynn, is that it's okay. It'll be okay. Maybe not right now, but it will be. So I really mm-hmm. want to thank you for being our guest here at Everyone Dies, and um, I hope that we get to talk with you again. Thank you. Well, thank you for this opportunity, uh, Marianne, and I, too, um, have enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode. 
please stay tuned for the unending escapades of Everyone Dies, the podcast. And thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete reminding you of Benjamin Franklin's observation that some people die at 25 and aren't buried until 75. And I'm Marianne Matso, and we will see you next week. Remember, every day is a gift. Charlie, so what do they this do with the people between 25 and 75? All um, such as are you familiar with the series The Walking Dead? Outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, I saw The Night of Living Dead. Discussion are for the original. Only, the original. And are not a yeah. For it was so good. It explained nothing. So you were just always, <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And the great irony of that ending. You know, the hero is mistaken and because it was the late 60s too and, and that character happened to be the actor uh, you know was, uh, who played it was black it just gave it I mean this multi-layered thing you know the say goodnight Charlie goodnight Charlie Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of everyone dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.